Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of The Woke Bros. I am your host, Big Waz Lambre, a.k.a. Big Waz, a.k.a. the Haitian sensation. Just kidding. I'm Nando Vila. Big Waz is out this week. So we have a guest co-host, my friend, the historian, the professor of history at the University of Washington, visited, resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. All these names sound super fancy. His name is Daniel Bessner. How you doing? Thanks, Nando. Uh, first time, long time. Just happy to be the latest addition to the Woke Bros stable. You know, it's just a real honor. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, you're on the Black Opinion Matters feed, you know, so that's what we needed. We needed some, <laughs> some, needed some a, Jewish, a guy Jewish guy energy. to come in. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I mean, it makes Absolutely. sense. It makes total sense. It makes total sense. On today's episode, you know, since we have Danny here, he's a foreign foreign policy expert. So we're going to do a foreign affairs themed show. We're going to do a little tour around the world. You know, Danny just published an article in the New Republican, in the New Republic, sorry, not the New Republican, uh, reviewing Stephen Wertheim's latest book, but really making a broad point about the United States' role in the world, which is something that we like to think about a lot on this show. We're also going to talk about these stories that are coming out in the news about Russian spies melting CIA agents' brains using James Bond villain-like microwave rays or something crazy like that. We're going to dissect that and see whether there's any truth to that. But first, a historic and historic election result in Bolivia. The mass party, the movement towards socialism, Evo Morales' party, won a resounding victory in the face of right-wing opposition, right-wing military coups, um, and really is just one of the more inspiring developments in the news that I can remember in recent memory. I mean, this was really like an astonishing show of democracy, the potential that uh, organized people power can achieve. Um, so, Danny, why don't you, why don't you uh, just go through it, talk to me, what happened in Bolivia? 
So uh, basically, uh, everyone knows that there was a military coup where essentially a military deadline, in my understanding, was given to Morales, and Morales was forced to go into exile. And Nando, correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but I believe he was in Argentina, uh, right? Yeah. So he was in Ar- So Morales yeah. was forced to go into Argentina, and of course, Morales is important, and Bolivia is important both for its own sake, because, uh, but also because it re- um, represented this turn in the early 2000s in Latin American politics, the so-called pink tide. Um, with Venezuela mm-hmm. and Hugo Chavez and in Brazil with our boy Lula and, of course, in Bolivia with Morales, right? And particularly in Bolivia, it represented the rise of an, uh, a very powerful indigenous politics for a country that I believe is majority indigenous. And I, I actually yeah. – um, it's significantly so. Um, but of course, as what's happened in the last 15, 20 years, Venezuela has deteriorated into what it's, what it's, you know, kind of what it's become, not, not what people might've envisioned when Chavez won. And of course, in Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, and the, uh, unrest and imprisonment of Lula and sort of the overcoming of Jilma. Um, and so Morales was kind of the last one standing a little bit part of this pink tide process. And so the coup, which was given at least sanctioned by the United States, has been, has been admitted uh, by many people, appears to have not worked. The interim president, uh, uh, basically a conservative leader, um, was very much overcome in this election. And I believe Moss got not only the presidency, but also the majority of Congress. Um, so mm-hmm. really given a, um, not a blank check, I, I think it's going to have to do a little bit more power sharing than it might've wanted to in the past, but it shows that there's still this hunger for this type of indigenous socialist politics in Bolivia. And perhaps what's even most important to me is that it shows that this movement is going to be able to last beyond the sort of cult of personality around Morales himself, yeah. which I think is a really important thing. Uh, the problem, some might what, what, what people might've said about Chavez or even Lula to some degree is that they were so organized around these forceful personalities that when these people exit from the scene, it might be harder to keep going. But what this is shown in Bolivia is that this seems to actually not be the case. There seems to be a serious um, politics that is going to structurally uh, last, maybe not in the way it was under Morales, which was you know very serious, uh, kind of controlling a lot of things, but in a more sort of power sharing way, which might actually be beneficial in the medium or long term, as long as the United States doesn't kind of uh, put its finger on the scale and try to hmm. pick people out, which very well may uh, may happen in some regard. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's interesting. You say that we say that kind of in jest, but it, there is a very good chance that the United States might intervene in Bolivia in some way. If not, if not, like it, it might not be just outright like an invasion or uh, a CIA-led coup or anything like that. It might just be kind of economic uh, hamstringing of the country, which is what the U.S. has done lately in a lot of countries like Venezuela or Iran. Um, and you know, I think it's important for people to understand. I mean, Bolivia. Why, what the fuck? It's Bolivia. Who gives a shit, right? It's just some country in South America that you probably don't even know that many Bolivians or whatever. But Bolivia is important because for a long, long time, Bolivia was the poorest country in South America. It was a largely rural, peasant, indigenous society um, that was dominated by a very small white elite, like a lot of Latin American countries. And Evo Morales in 2005 rises up and wins an election to become the first indigenous president, head of state in Latin America, country or a, a continent that was, you know, before the Europeans 
like me got there was all indigenous obviously and then um and then it was kind of like dominated by quick, this, quick the, correction. this this kind of white elite quick, yeah benito juarez in mexico mid-19th century uh <laughs> does he count as indigenous he, he or is he mestizo of some no, sort no, uh, oh i mean he's mestizo but i mean he's indigenous. he's in, right yeah no, okay. no, evo morales no one will claim that evo morales <laughs> okay. is mestizo at all he is 100 percent indigenous especially in recent uh, context um, definitely yeah, yeah indigenous yeah yeah so, um, so it was, it was this remarkable, uh, victory for the indigenous people of Bolivia. And, you know, Evo Morales, you know, he looks, he's a, he's a, he looks like an indigenous peasant, you know, it's not what you normally see in the head of state as a head of state, you don't see them at the UN. Um, and so I remember at the time, cause I grew up in Miami where there was a lot of, you know, Latin American politics is always on people's minds. People were just making so much fun of him. Everyone thought he was going to be this total disaster. You know, obviously, it's, it was all horribly racist and and just kind of assuming that this idiot peasant was just going to be a completely da- disaster. And then lo and behold, he was not. He was actually incredibly successful. The Bolivian economy grew tremendously in the 14 years that Evo Morales was in power, and while he reduced the amount of poverty in Bolivia dramatically. I mean, so he did the two things you want, right? You want economic growth while reducing poverty. Um, and, you know, by every, every single metric, it was an unqualified success. Um, and, Again, that could not be tolerated, right? You cannot allow left-wing people to succeed. So he was ousted in a right-wing military coup. Um, So to see his party roar back into power uh, less than a year later, um, and by basically this overwhelming show of democratic basically power in, in, in the face of, you know, military opposition, there were right-wing goons just beating people up on the streets. Um, obviously the media was totally in the tank, uh, for the opposition, all those things that, you know, all the obstacles yet still this very well organized, very highly militant working class movement, um, was able to, was able to come back into power. So it was just, it was just a very inspiring thing to see. And a very, and very significant given sort of the decline of the pink tide. I think this is a, this is a mm-hmm. burst of inspiration to Latin American leftists generally, not only in Bolivia, but elsewhere throughout the continent, because Latin America, there, there is a sort of transcontinental, not North and South, but, you know, uh, South and Central America about sort of this envisionment of a social democratic politics. I think it's really important. And I think it's important for just us in the United States to be aware of what um, this country might do and and really work against um, um, any sort of anti-MAS movement. Because the United States has historically, of of course, intervened in Latin America in three ways. Direct invasion, for example, that happened with General Winfield Scott in the 19th century, or Woodrow Wilson invading Veracruz in uh, in the midst of World War One, or uh, you know the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, so like that that shouldn't happen. I, but as Nando said, that's probably not going to happen. But also, you know, we have to be very careful about economic manipulation, like Nando uh, Nando mentioned in terms of Iran and sanctions. But also, U.S. Latin America, uh, the United States for for decades controlled Latin, uh, certain Latin American countries' politics through dollar diplomacy, the manipulation of the dollar, and of course, the dollar stands at the center of the international system. 
so we have to be aware of that and then also just what the united states has really done since the 80s as well which is kind of fun up fund opposition groups has happened with the contras and, and various other groups throughout uh, central mm-hmm. america so we uh, you know on the left here need to be very aware of what this government um whether it's trump or biden they probably both don't want a left-wing uh, president a left-wing leader in in bolivia uh we'll just let's just keep our keep our ears to the to the yeah, ground yeah. with that one <laughs> yeah no absolutely and and you know assuming a, a biden victory which looks very likely um what do you reckon uh, a biden presidency what their policy will be towards countries like bolivia Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, quote unquote, enemy countries really just means countries that are on the left <laughs> in right. Latin America. Um, what What is a Biden? What would a Biden policy towards them be? I think it's going to be the standard American policy of trying to wring concessions from particular American interest groups out of these countries. I mean, Bolivia, um, I believe, is uh, one of the world centers of lithium, right? And so I think it, yeah, uh, it, is, yeah. it has yeah, yeah. Huge, it has huge lithium reserves. Right. Enormous yeah. lithium reserves. So my guess would just be, you know, what America did with United Fruit, maybe not this, the same sort of uh, incredibly uh, drastic like that, but, you know, trying to wring concessions in particular ways of getting around nationalizations of particular industries and things along those lines. And I think that would be true for Trump or Biden. Actually, Biden, who's probably going to be, or at least those under him are going to be more with it, might be, might be, uh, you know, quote unquote, more scary uh, when we're thinking about the future of Latin America, whereas the general Trump disinterest in anything might actually allow the, these um, groups to, uh, to, to flourish. And I think, again, um, you know, we on the left, we don't love the Democratic Party, but this is something that we should do. We should, we should pressure Democratic senators, you know, to oppose things like um, anti-mass policies, uh, to pr- oppose people like Bolsonaro and, and um leaders along those lines. Yeah. So yeah, um, a bit of good news in a very bleak 2020. I mean, this is probably the best news that has happened in the world in 2020 is this just the the restoration of democracy in Bolivia. So, you know, uh, something to something to feel inspired by, Um, you know, if they could do it in Bolivia, Surely we can do it here. And very unexpected, um, very unexpected that that, totally that, unexpected. that this was going to be such a blowout. Uh, and in yeah. fact, it actually – the media really didn't think – the Bolivian media really didn't think this was going to happen. So, I mean, that doesn't augur well for the United States yeah. and the role of the media getting things right. But hopefully you know, we won't see another Trump. Well, speaking of the media getting things right, I want to switch <laughs> gears to our next story. Um, this was a, a very large uh, – piece that dropped in GQ this week, courtesy of Julia Yaffe. Um, and the piece is called The Mystery of the Immaculate Concussion in GQ. Um, and the subhead is, he was a senior CIA official tasked with getting tough on Russia. Then, one night in Moscow, Mark Polymeropoulos, which just, you know, wow, nice Steve Polymeropoulos, thank you. Adam Sandler uh, reference. Think of, <laughs> yeah, Steve Polymeropoulos. Yeah, all you kids uh, yeah, look up one that night, video. <laughs> Steve Polymeropoulos. Yeah, the kids don't know what that is. <laughs> that is an yeah. old reference, man. <laughs> That's 25 yeah. years old, longer, 27, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, one night in Moscow, Steve Polymeropoulos, his life changed forever. He says he was hit with a mysterious weapon 
joining dozens of American diplomats and spies who believe they've been targeted with this secret device all over the world and even at home on U.S. soil. Now, as a CIA investigation points the blame at Russia, the victims are left wondering why so little is being done by the Trump administration. So this is some guy. He's in the CIA. His name is his name is Steve Polychronopoulos. And he's like a CIA agent, essentially. You yeah, he's know, an undercover pretty high agent. Up. Yeah, in the middle of yeah. And then he ran part of the CIA. He's a CIA <laughs> agent. Yeah. Yeah, he is a spy. Yeah. And he is saying that he went to Russia. Uh, he says not to do any covert operations, although I don't know what a CIA agent would be doing in Russia other than doing a covert operation. And that he was hit with a mysterious weapon that basically caused his brain to start malfunctioning. And he started feeling nausea. He, he lost control of his body. He says he barely made it out of there. And that now the government is leaving him out to dry. Um, and this is not the first time we've heard about this. In the past few years, we've heard a lot of stories of diplomats in the U.S. Embassy in Cuba complaining that they started hearing, you know, like strange noises, like ringing in their head, nausea, you know, and, and, and the media is running with this narrative that the Cubans and the Russians and, you know, the bad people out there have this mysterious weapon that basically shoots microwave rays into people's brains and gets them to get yeah. all messed up. I don't know. It destroys their axons, sk- basically. That's, the, the idea is that yeah. it destroys the white matter of their brain and their, their axons or axons, which is like pretty serious. It kind of regulates a lot of functioning and things like that. So that's yeah. the claim, at least. Yeah. No, it is. So, again, yeah, I mean – you should be very skeptical of this story, I think, if you're listening to this at home. But, Danny, I wanted to get your take. I mean, you you claim to be an expert in these death rays. Is this technology, does it even exist in the world? I mean, and even if it did exist, is it likely that the United States would not have one first? That, like, the Russians would have some sort of technology that the United States military-industrial complex did not get the two first like what is going on here unpack this for us are our spies our beloved spies getting their brains melted (laughs) when they go to moscow um okay well um a lot of a lot of this weapon stuff in particular is very difficult to know because so much of it is classified and so many of the effects of the weapons are classified so like that's you know step one Route one. Um, but I would say that since the late 1940s, actually, Yoffe gets her um, her her argue, her history a little bit wrong. She says that this began in the early 1960s. But um, I know as 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 early as 1946, the United States was pouring quite a bit of money into so-called death rays, into so-called microwave rays, particularly through um, the Rand Corporation, which was Project Rand and part of Douglas Aircraft. They basically wanted to fund like superheating rays that you know would heat a body to between. 8,000 and 17,000 degrees Celsius. And this was actually tested on animals in Iowa at, at the very least. This, this information has been has been released. So it stands to reason that over the next 75 years, this type of research has almost certainly been um, 
been promoted and invested in by the United States, probably at different corporations, at different defense contractors. So it stands to reason that the United States probably has some sort of death ray-esque weapon, whether it's used with microwaves or whether it's acoustic or things along those lines. Now, the the ability of these weapons to work and, and who knows, it, it's again, it's very difficult to know. As the article, I think, expresses well, like a lot of this is hearsay, a lot of this is conjecture, no one's really saying anything. Um, but it, it stands to reason that if the Russian Federation has one of these weapons, that the United States also has one of these weapons. Now, what's unique about this weapon, um, and so there have been previous weapons, but they, from my understanding, is that they've been able to operate in a much shorter distance. With this weapon, I think the claim is that it's within two miles of someone, which would be an incredibly accurate thing to basically yeah there's a lot of people in between yeah how do they not you know there's people in between (laughs) right and and so i mean it's maybe we'll find out that the russians really did do this and it was who 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 knows but I, i would say that um the article is permeated with uh, an incredible Russophobia uh, that essentially, mm-hmm. like, it, it, I mean, uh, Yuffi, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Nando, but she's like a pretty hawkish on Russia. She's a, I believe, a yes. Soviet emigre uh, and yes. is, you know, very skeptical of, um, you know, not that someone shouldn't be skeptical of Putin, but like uh, that, uh, you know, she's she's very much um, not in favor of Russia. Uh, yes. And so uh, this is basically, the article is essentially arguing in favor of going hard against Russia because they're attacking Hacking our spies. Um, and what's really interesting <laughs> is that like the, the article, you know, she interviews CIA people, all of whom basically, a lot of whom at least want to be um, anonymous. They're like, we have no idea why the Russians are doing this, you know, like yeah. they don't want to fight. And it's just like the, the staggering blindness of the American foreign policy lead is so impressive to me. It's like, why would Russia care that, you know, the United States has 750 bases, tons of which are, are stationed on their periphery and, uh, you know, would be attacking it. It's just so wild, the sheer power imbalance that is never reflected as such. Yeah, yeah and I, I think the reason why I thought this story was interesting is because f- I remember covering the 2012 election. It was the first election that I covered uh, as part of any news uh, organization. And um, it was it, it was interesting because the, you know, the Democratic candidate at the time, Barack Obama, was running on a platform of engagement with Russia, of a sort of detente with Russia and, and Vladimir Putin. And he actually made fun of Mitt Romney for being hawkish on Russia. And since 2015, 2016, that has changed dramatically in that the, the liberals in America have become unbelievably hawkish on Russia. I mean, it's, it's, it's taken as, it's taken as a matter of faith that Putin is uniquely evil, hell bent on world domination. And, um, and that the only policy that any sane person in the United States would advocate or pursue is like just extreme confrontation with Russia. And they are convinced that Donald Trump because of things, you know, nonsense like the P tape or because like some random dude like Don Jr. sent an email to like some Russian dude that, you know, Donald Trump is in Vladimir Putin's pocket and and that he's being soft towards Russia in some 
in some meaningful way. And I've always found that narrative to both be quite terrifying and that like confrontation with Russia, like no good can come of that. But also that the evidence that that Trump has been soft on Russia is is to me quite flimsy. I mean, I, you know, I see the United States sending tanks to Poland. I see the United States offering um, NATO membership to, to, to states that are within the Russian kind of periphery sphere of influence, as you said. So this whole narrative is just so mind boggling to me. And it strikes me that one of the things that the media has done is that if you mention Russia, you're allowed to say anything you want. You know, that just because this story mentions Russia as the bad guy, you're allowed to say that they have microwave death rays uh, with a range of two miles that, ha- that can pinpoint a single CIA agent in his hotel room at the Marriott in Moscow um, and can fry his brain. Um, it just strikes me as as all, all part of the same kind of ideological project that I, I just find quite terrifying. I think that's right. And I think one, I, I think one should really um, occupy, not a middle ground isn't per se, but maybe a more complex or sophisticated ground, which is, I think it's oh. possible to recognize that Putin is not the greatest guy in the world uh, and that he uh, is not a Democrat by any stretch of the imagination. And it's very clear that he wants to assert Russian sovereignty in traditional Russian spheres of influence, particularly in Crimea, which was Russian for a long time, um, and in his invasion of eastern Ukraine, and then also his invasion of Georgia, right? I think it's very clear that in what might be called the Soviet periphery, Putin has been asserting since he got in there about 20 years ago that this is Russia's area of influence. That is true. However, one is also able to understand at the same time that there are no vital American interests in these regions, that it's for the regional powers themselves to figure out doing things like sending tanks or weapons indefinitely into these regions does nothing but continue, uh, but uh, assert the continuation of the American empire. And that Russia, regardless of, frankly, Russophobic people like I I believe Rachel Maddow has made these types of claims before, um, has no desire or even really ability to dominate its uh, its its western borders let alone the world I believe its economy is the same size as Italy's something along those smaller lines. than Italy's. Yeah, smaller than Italy's or yeah or so uh, and a gigantic vast territory uh, and who knows what's going to happen when Putin who is quite old uh, retires from the scene so I think it's incumbent upon the left to to admit Putin is no Democrat, you know, he's no socialist by any stretch of the imagination, while also working against like, this is not America's fight in any meaningful way. And to frame it as, you know, these in this Cold War era terms does a disservice to basically everyone in this country and abroad. Well, that's a good segue, you know, that this isn't America's fight, you know, that we, we really have no no role to play in 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 that part of the world because you just dropped a very very long piece in the New Republic. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I, I mean that as I I enjoyed the whole thing. I read the whole entire thing, um, and uh, it's it's a review of of a book by Stephen Wertheim called Tomorrow the World. Um, and I'm assuming Stephen Wertheim is someone that you know, someone that you respect because the review is quite favorable to it. But basically, you used the opportunity uh, of of this book review to discuss the um, history of American supremacy in the world. I mean, this is something that if you grew up in the 90s, like 
you and I both did, was just so ingrained in our brains uh, from a very, very early age that the United States is basically around to police the world. That if something bad happens in some part of the world, the United States sends its troops over and, you know, kind of cleans it up. Um, and that that's like an unquestionably good thing. You know, I think that the events of the last 20 years have really shattered that illusion, especially the war in Iraq, I mean, amongst other things, but the war in Iraq is the big one, that this idea that the United States should even think about being the policeman of the world is is just unbelievably dumb and destructive and counterproductive and immoral in many many ways. Um, so, uh, talk about what 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 you see the 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 history a little bit of the history, but don't get too don't get too nerdy with it. But just a little <laughs> bit of the history of how the United States became such a dominant force uh, in world affairs, um, and uh, and then talk about like what and then we can talk about what you think the United States' role should be going forward in an ideal world. Sure. Well, to really understand, you have to go back to 1215 and the signing of the map. No, so, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so, so basically, uh, the United States is, of course, founded in an anti-colonial revolution. And one of the claims of the United States when it's founded is that it's going to be different from Europe because it's not going to engage in power politics. That is going to be this liberal enlightened space. And everyone mm-hmm. listening knows that that's largely bullshit. Uh, you know, the genocide of the Native Americans, the slavery of, of black Americans from Africa, et cetera, et cetera. And many other oppressions. However, when people are talking about international relations that don't involve the Western Hemisphere, basically from the beginning, the United States says it's going to dominate the Western Hemisphere. But outside of the Western Hemisphere, until World War II, the United States essentially says it's not going to participate in European power politics. Even World War One is not undertaken in a way that is to for the United States to dominate the world. It represents a different thing. The idea that you're going to be able to use reason to basically tame power politics. So there's this internationalist movement that begins in the 19th century, is embodied by the work of Woodrow Wilson and continues in the 1920s, where people, elites in the United States says what's you uni- uh, say what's unique about the United States is that it's going to help, you know, end war through reason and discussion. What happens in the 1930s is that Hitler in Germany, Mussolini in Italy, and Stalin in the Soviet Union rise, right? They're charismatic dictators and they're not liberal. They don't believe in reason in the same way by any stretch of the imagination. So this begins to make people in the United States question this internationalist idea that reason could actually end war. Um, So World War I breaks out, Hitler invades Poland, and the United States is like, hmm, it seems like power is actually more important than than we think. So uh, a number of elites in the State Department, in the Council on Foreign Relations, which is actually a a non-state group but is making foreign policy, begin to really say like, hmm, it seems like power matters more. Then something really dramatic happens. France falls to the Nazis in the summer of 1940. And this is a really big deal because even though Americans were beginning to rethink the importance of power in international relations, they really did think that the French and British empires would be able to halt the Nazis. When the Nazis actually defeated the French, American elites are like, holy shit. Uh, If the Nazis take over all of Europe, they're going to be a real block on American progress, both in terms of literal capitalist exchange, right? The Nazis control Europe. We're not going to get favorable terms to all these European countries. If they control oil in the Middle East and Azerbaijan, we're not going to be able to get good oil. Uh, So that's one liberal interchange. But also, like, America is not going to be able to, like, drive world destiny, which is one of the reasons the Mm. nation was founded. So it's really after the fall of France that Americans make a really radical shift where they begin to say that the 
purpose of the United States is to dominate the world. And so what do they do? They take over bases from the United Kingdom. They create international organizations like the UN, which give the United States and other great powers kind of a veto power over international relations. And most importantly, they begin, elites begin to tell the American public that world peace, prosperity, and the destiny of the United States depends on the United States governing the world. And during the Cold War, the United States eventually expands to the point where it literally does dominate the world, especially after the end of the Soviet Union. So uh, I'll end on this today for people who don't just know the pure statistics. The United States controls 750 military bases. China controls one mm. in Djibouti. Russia controls somewhere between <laughs> 12 and 21. The United States, again, controls 750 bases, overseas bases, through which it could threaten the entire world and spends more on its military than the next 10 countries combined, which include China, Saudi Arabia, the UK, France, blah, 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 all the countries, all the big countries. The United States spends more than 10 uh, than the next 10 countries combined. And this is because the Americans today believe that world peace and prosperity uh, depends on the United States being what's called the hegemon, which simply means the most powerful nation on earth. And this is the situation that we're in today, Nando. And this is the situation that we grew up with when someone like Secretary of State Madeleine Albright told Matt Lauer, I believe in 1998, that the United States is the world's indispensable nation. And this is something that Mm -hmm. I'm arguing against in my basically all of my work. Yeah, you, it's 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 staggering. It's you, you mentioned one of the statistics that the United States has over one hundred and ninety thousand soldiers deployed in approximately one hundred forty different countries, and it's around seventy percent of the world's totals. I mean, we have we have American boys and boys and gals in uniform all over the world, basically at all times. We're basically occupying the world militarily. Um, I mean, this is like uh, you know, even as the United States, it can you know. In, as we, we all see all around us, like experiences kind of decline at home, declining living standards, declining um, institutions that are just falling apart. The military might is basically stronger than it's ever has been. Um, so I, I guess, you know, what what should be the United States' role in the world? Because what you hear a lot of people say is like, yeah, I don't like American empire, but can we really trust the Chinese to fill the gap? You know, like, would you be worried if, uh, you know, if the United States pulled back from the world and it created a sort of power vacuum um, and the Chinese, you know, Xi Jinping was like, you know, I'm going to step right in there and um, and and take control of this power vacuum. Like, what do you say to that? I mean, that's like the most common thing you think is like, you know, like it's better the enemy, you know, than, uh, you know, the bad guy that, you know, versus the bad guy that could be because it could it could always be worse. No, I think that's a great question. And I think uh, we. this is why it's important to rethink how we understand international relations. The world is not a vacuum through which uh, someone leaving le- means that something else will automatically fill in. I think it's actually in a very interesting way, uniquely American to view the world in such universal terms. And I think it's actually related to like the Christian millenarianism that permeates so much of American culture. The idea that the United States has been put on earth to literally save everyone is a very Christian, in fact, Puritan idea that is mm. baked into this country's DNA. Now, during the Cold War, people argue that Marxism-Leninism was a similarly universal idea. We're learning more and more as more archives become open in the Soviet Union that it never actually had such universal global aspirations. That's actually a very strange American thing. And I would argue that today, China, again, like Russia, certainly has regional aspirations. It wants to be the hegemon 
in East Asia. It does not want the United States in East Asia. It does not want South Korea, Japan, uh, the Philippines, Taiwan balancing against it. That is absolutely true. But the, uh, I would say China has no desire to dominate the entire world. Only Americans would be crazy enough to think that that is, in <laughs> fact, possible. It's a very strange thing, if you think about it, that, that I think um, literally emerges from a uh, a religious belief, a religious ideology that you have to save. I mean, this country is a Christian country. It's a culturally Christian country, and that affects a lot of um, how we understand the world. Um, I, I don't want to keep on going. Do you want me to talk about what I think should happen or – yeah, yeah. What do you think should happen? I mean, especially okay. So, like, let's frame it in 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 terms you know that are that are kind of closer to home. You know, there's an election coming up. I think you and I both agree that we prefer the Democratic candidate Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that on the whole, on the whole, the Democratic candidate Joe Biden is better than Donald Trump. Yes. We all agree on that. But it, it it certainly doesn't map like super neatly on every single thing that there are kind of elements that are um, in a dark way kind of nice about a Trump presidency. One is that, you know, he basically uh, has no interest in being that kind of global hegemon. He personally just doesn't have the time or energy. I mean, there was like the hilarious story that came out this week of that he was getting some, uh, he was getting like a, uh, a classified briefing on Afghanistan inside his uh, Atlantic City uh, golf resort. And he, and he interrupted the briefing to be like, I'm in the mood for like a malt. Anyone else want a malted milkshake? Like in the middle of the briefing and like, you know, all the CIA ghouls are just like horrified about it. And like with the story that we saw of Steve Polychronopoulos, um, you know, basically complaining that Trump like has no business with the CIA, that Trump doesn't doesn't pay attention to us. Like he's just it's straight up like the whole article. It's shocking. It's like him just whining about Trump, not really, which is kind of nice because the CIA is a force for evil in the world. It is not a force for good. It has never never has been. It is unquestionably a force for evil. It, it makes no sense in any democratic society to have this kind of black box that is completely outside of our democratic control or understanding even. We have no idea what the hell is going on in there, um, except for what trickles out here and there from like, you know, brave journalists, which, um, you know, that's that even that's not happening as much lately. So um, there is a little perk, which is that that Trump, you know, basically uh, ignores the CIA. But on the whole, a Joe Biden presidency would be better. And, and we think that uh, a Joe Biden presidency will happen. So what will a Joe Biden presidency like, you know, how do you see it um, in terms of this, this the United States role in the world, the American empire? Yeah. So this is where, in some sense, the Biden presidency double-edged sword might be too strong. But, you know, it'll be way better with things like health care. You know, it's probably going to move in some sort of M4A direction in some regard, hopefully. But it'll also be way more competent in things on issues like foreign policy, uh, where I think Trump has been, you know, <laughs> rattled isn't the right word, but has been affected by both disinterest and incompetence uh, for, for most yeah. of foreign policy. It'll be interesting to know actually what the empire was doing without a head for four years. And I'm sure we'll find out some really dark, <laughs> disturbing things. But, you know, he, he this wasn't a major <laughs> issue area uh, for him. But I think, you know, Biden, I think he's going to appoint people like Michelle Florney, Samantha Powers, Susan Rice, um, Nicholas Burns, probably to import a bunch of girl bosses, yes, which is actually in, in interesting in terms of like the transfer. But whatever, that's a academic question, but a bunch of people who really believe that the United States needs uh, needs to lead um, a so-called liberal international order and that there will be chaos if the United States doesn't assert world hegemony. And I think you'll see a return to the type of liberal internationalist politics 
that one's seen democratic administrations embrace over the last 20, 25 years, uh, whether it's from Bosnia to Kosovo uh, to uh, aspects of Iraq to, to Libya as well. So I think you might see more, um, particularly if someone like Power has a very influential position, I think you're you're likely to see more interventions abroad, you know, quote unquote, humanitarian interventions. Uh, perhaps you're likely to see more responsibility to protect um, a, a UN designation for uh, the use of force abroad. And I don't think you'll be seeing much um, dismantling of the structure of American empire. You might, I, I, I even venture to guess, you'll see something like the greening of the American military, like a green yeah. new deal for the American that military. That was Elizabeth Warren's big idea. That was her big idea. And I think you'll see stuff like that, but I don't think you're going to see like 750 bases go down to 300. You know, I think that military spending will remain relatively stable. In fact, the the Congress, both sides, voted against reducing a $738 billion budget by 10%. Uh, <laughs> Which oh, is oh, nothing. Not, it's literally not – that's like corruption money. It's literally right. – It's literally. There's by the way, there's so much graft and, and things like that and overtime, oh, whatever. Yeah. Incredible. But so anyway, so you, I think you'll see a, a continuation of the structure. And this was what, one of the many reasons it was such a shame that Bernie didn't win. I, I think that Bernie was really going to at least begin to think through the structure to hopefully create task forces to think what should the national security state be? How many bases does the United States have? What are they actually doing? And I don't think you'll see much of that in a Biden administration, given who he said that he's a, uh, that he'll probably appoint. What should the U.S. military budget be? <laughs> Zero dollars. <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest, so like I, I, as you know, like I was one of the team of advisors for Bernie. Bernie Sanders yeah. campaign, right? And these sorts of questions came up. Uh, and so, uh, honestly, I was like, we need we need task forces. We need to study these issues because it's not just like the United States views the world and then it says what the objective security requirements are and then changes the base structure. All of these things are embedded in, in processes like congressional pork. You know, you have a defense plant in your in your state and you'd lose 5,000 jobs if the plant left. You know, so there actually has to be a very difficult, complex analysis of the various structures and networks of power that allow this system to exist that incorporates both external threats and sort of the eternal processes of, of American capitalism as they've developed over the last 75 years. So it's honestly very difficult to know, but we need to right now, what we could do as the left is sitting on the side is actually to begin to develop the answers to these questions, to even begin mm. asking these questions. So when we do eventually win with like, let's say a president AOC on day one, we like here, um, president Ocasio-Cortez, here's the five plans you need for the American mm. empire, right? That's what I think we should be doing as you know the biden administration likely takes office in, in january yeah and, and you know the the role of u.s weapons manufacturers um as you mentioned uh you know it's it you you come off not you personally but anyone who talks about this comes off sounding like some you know hippy dippy you know like hey man you know did you know what the richest county in america is where the pentagon is man you know but it's 100% true. The richest county in America is literally where the Pentagon is, which is which means that it's basically just the CEOs and and you know ruling class of the weapons manufacturers just getting paid by the government to develop weapons, yeah. huge amounts of money. Yeah, and th and this is why I think what the left could really do is really ask important questions about the American state. For example, should weapons manufacturing be a private industry? Right. Basically, the 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 clients of the weapon manufacturers are overwhelmingly the American government or like. Saudi Arabia, you know, like should a monopoly of like Raytheon and Lockheed, et cetera, General Dynamics, should these 
companies be literally independent? Should they be private? I mean, to me, it seems like weapons manufacturing is a proper is a proper function of a state. You know, like that yeah. that it shouldn't be like open to innovation and right. competitive bidding and blah blah blah. And I think these were and this is only an artifact really of the 1920s and 1930s and really World War II that it developed in this way. So I think we on the left need to think really creatively about like what a left state would actually look like. Not only maybe healthcare shouldn't be private, but maybe weapons manufacturing shouldn't be private. And we should begin to make those arguments very forcefully yeah. from the moral position that we have. Yeah. You know, you like Medicare for all. How about Raytheon for all? Exactly, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Take that candidate AOC. Um, <laughs> I mean, and so, it's literally like former officers, like literally just become Raytheon contractors. Yeah. So oh, it's yeah. like a revolving door. I mean, it's, it's yeah. wild. Like we know about the revolving um, so, yeah. door on Wall Street where like if you're uh, sec- undersecretary treasury for Western Hemisphere or whatever and you're just making economic policy uh, uh, and then you just leave the government and you go for work for Goldman Sachs and get paid $5 million. Um, same thing happens when the weapons manufacturers and like, yeah, I mean you sound – it makes you sound like a kind of hippy-dippy crank but it's 100% true. It's 100% true that this – that this is one of the ways the system reinforces itself that the people in power just kind of are in power and then they get paid and then they go back in power and then they come back and they get paid and you know it's just it that's the that's the sort of vicious cycle yeah it's grotesque i mean it, it's grotesque and this is one of the this is why actually just for for people listening who might not have thought of this before this is why the american state is so difficult to reform because so many of its functions are privatized and yeah. that to me was actually on purpose it is, you escape democratic accountability if you're quote unquote a private company. No matter that you know 80% of your business comes from the U.S. government, right. uh, but you're nominally private, and so you know it, it, it takes like a very motivated Congress member to do investigations and things like that, and that takes a lot of political capital. And you're not going to do that if Raytheon has 15 factories in Massachusetts, and you're right. going to lose 50,000 jobs, right? So this is where it gets very, very um, complicated and, and a hairy situation. Yeah, you know, and and you know this 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 hegemony of the U.S. empire that we've talked about, like this sort of overwhelming military might. The the the, you know, it, there is a little bit of an element of um, when you have when you, all you got is a hammer, you know, everything looks like a nail, um, and you know it it, it informs. My view of the the sort of liberal impulse to see problems in the world and and then really kind of get outraged by it, what what ends up happening is you you end up kind of reinforcing the American impetus to do something. You know, like if you have to do something, well, the only thing we got is the American military, and the only thing the American military does is going to do is like kill a bunch of people. (laughs) And um, you know, like so, I I think about that with something like this story in in, uh, coming out of Nigeria, right? The this like these anti police brutality, brutality uh, protests that have turned very deadly, the government repression. You know, Nigeria is a very large, very populous country in Africa. Um, you know, it's a very important country in Africa. And, you know, like, obviously, we want to stand in solidarity with the people in Nigeria and all that stuff. But there is an element that, like, you know, it's be careful what you wish for. Like, if the United States were to intervene in Nigeria, the situation would become immeasurably worse, right. you know. So, like, how how would how should an, uh, a country like the United States 
deal with something like what's going on in Nigeria or what's going on in country X? You know, like how how what what is the right response? I, I think that's a really important question because I think a lot of people on the left get tripped up on what is called humanitarian intervention, or to really frame uh, frame it in the starkest possible way. Uh, if women and children and you know, frankly men are about to be killed, uh, and you could stop it, why wouldn't you stop it? Right. And and right. I think the ethical answer um, is like immediately everyone says, of course, you stop it. Like, how could you not stop it? Um, but where I would push back on that is I, I would say, like, it's actually problematic to stopping it for two reasons. Um, one, and most obviously, you don't know what's going to happen after it. So, so think about Benghazi, right, where the United States went in to protect, uh, to protect where Hillary Clinton, where Hillary Clinton, yeah. Samantha Power, yeah. uh, Susan Rice, um, <laughs> where they promoted an intervention to stop Gaddafi's army from attacking Benghazi and committing a humanitarian intervention. Very quickly turned into so-called mission creep. Very quickly turned into the deposition of of Gaddafi, and now Libya is in total chaos. Uh, and there are things like slave markets, and so you, one, you can never predict. Fun. Yeah, right. You can never predict. So that's just, you know, just the philosophical problem. But even more, I would say, is that we on the left are, are interested in material structural solutions, right? So um, think about it. If you maintain the weapons to do things like humanitarily intervene, that means that the, uh, the structure of the American empire will continue. And that means that these bad things that we've attributed to the American empire, for example, about tens of millions of dead during the Cold War, we all know the bad statistics, blah, 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 will continue. No, we don't actually, you know. So, you know let's let's go through them. So, so during the cold, people, book, I don't think people have any idea. Sure. So so just in brief, there's a book called Rethinking the Long Peace because a lot of people today referred are, are nostalgic for the Cold War, thinking it was a, a you know sort of this peaceful era. I'll just give two quick statistics. One, this book by um, I believe his name not Paul Gillingham. Uh, sorry, he's a guy at Columbia. Sorry, I forget his name initially. It's called Rethinking the Cold War. But he argues that between 1945 and 1989, about 20 million people died in Cold War era conflicts. That's basically a, a melee massacre or my lie massacre a day for 45 years. Uh, so that's um, absolutely terrible. And also um, recent work by a scholar named Lindsay O'Rourke in this book, Covert Regime Change, has revealed that during the Cold War, the United States attempted to covertly overthrow regimes 66 times, and in 44 of those cases supported authoritarian forces. And that basically, if I remember the argument correctly, and I think I, I am, that these attempts almost always led to things like mass killing, et cetera, after. So like we can't really trust the United States to do what's right. And so I think that the major goal of the left is though, even though it will be terrible to see atrocities happen abroad, um, the benefit, uh, uh, the world will benefit more from the dismantling of the American empire. And if you do want to do mm. something, and I think things like this are going to become increasingly important in an era of climate change, uh, redistribute resources from the global North to the global South, right? A particular small mm. number of North Atlantic countries have essentially dominated the world for 500 years, the beginning of the era of colonialism, rapaciously stealing raw materials, you know, um, underdeveloping, et cetera, the rest of the world. And if you want to do something, redistribute resources, which is, of course, a hard thing to say because so many Americans are today suffering. But that's because our elites are hoarding the resources and we might actually find yeah. it's common not, cause. Yeah, you don't need to – if you're like just some regular Joe Schmo, you don't need to accept a lower standard of living. Let's take it from the like the, the assholes who have all the money. Exactly. They, can, they can accept a lower standard of living. 
Well, Daniel, thank you so much Thanks, for man. subbing in for Big Waz, giving us a little tour around the world. Um, I encourage everyone to follow Daniel on social media, on Twitter. You know, he's always got the hot takes. He's always got the good takes. Um, he's also a columnist at a newsletter called Foreign Exchange, run by Derek Davison, which I highly, highly, highly recommend everyone to subscribe to. It is to me, one of the, my most indispensable uh, news sources. I mean, it, it really is. It's like every day he delivers a newsletter where he goes around the world and just gives you a quick paragraph or two on on like the major stories from around the world, from by, country by country. It's it's really an astonishing thing, and and Daniel uh, writes for them uh, every once in a while, um, and I just it's just amazing. So yeah, follow Daniel. Subscribe to Foreign Exchange, uh, Foreign Exchanges, and become a patron of the Count the Dings Network. All that good stuff. Watch my show with Jacobin uh, on on Saturday mornings, and uh, yeah, just keep fighting the good fight. <laughs>